Acts chapter 13, verses 42 to 52. I invite you there. Let's read through that section together. Beginning in verse 42, And as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them on the next Sabbath. Now when the uh, the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, (coughs) who, speaking these things, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord had commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that ye may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was being spread throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of the district. But they shook off the dust of their feet, in protest against them, and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy, and with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you'll recall, Paul has uh, Paul and Barnabas have uh, entered that region. It's really a region. There's a big city there and Presidian Antioch, but it's also, that term is also used to cover the region. So they are literally in preaching in the synagogue in the large city there, but when we talk about Presidian Antioch, it's also understood that's the same terminology for a larger region than just the city itself. But they've entered the heart of that region, the city, and they're preaching there in the synagogue. And uh, we've gone through uh, Paul's glorious, powerful preaching there, his first recorded message in Scripture. And here we come to, there's been a call, there's been a warning, there's been a call to repent and believe on Christ, there's been a warning of the the assured condemnation of anyone who rejects Christ, it's been clearly laid out by Paul, and now we see the conclusion, we see the response in this text. And so, there was response, and like uh, in all cases, the response to the gospel, there was a splitting, a rejection, and a receiving. That's always the case. And those who responded to the gospel and received Christ as their Savior, while well, that little group actually made up a church. In this case, it only took about a week. So we wonder, you know, sometimes, how long does it take to plant a church? Well, I don't know, that could vary. And some of the core group here, they say, um, well, it, it can be a long uh, a slog. And it can take a great time. But uh, in this case, it only took about a week. Um, the area itself was, was a mixed bag. A mixture. There's, a, there's a large Jewish population in that region, but certainly a mixed bag of, of the Gentile population too. And so as they're there, uh, they preach Christ. They preach Christ. If you remember, they preach Christ. He's the culmination of history. He's the fulfillment of prophecy. And He's the justifier of sinners. If we were to nutshell Paul's message, that would kind of capture it right there. And then again, they follow that up with a warning and a call to respond. So we see the beauty of the structure of Paul's message here. It was wonderful and it was precise and it was centered on Christ and His glory and salvation and the hope for all sinners. Now, in that though, let me note again, the gospel divides. The gospel is a divisive message. It is a... <clears throat> the gospel is a message that calls people to account. It calls sinners to account before a holy God. And it also extends salvation to sinners through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. It divides And it makes a division between mankind. You're either saved in Christ or you're lost outside of Christ. And there's no middle ground. 
So that brings us to the initial response there in verses 42 through 44. So look there with me. And let's just briefly go over uh, the language here in verses 2 through 44 again. Excuse me, through verses 42 and 44. So as Paul and Barnabas were going out, that means going out of the synagogue after preaching, the people kept begging them that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now when the meeting in the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews... Thank you, my friend. That should serve me well. Um, Many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas out, who were speaking to them and were urging them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. Now, what I want you to see again up front here as we look at these first few verses, verses, this initial response is this reality. The gospel divides. The gospel always divides. It is a divisive message. And so there's a request made here. And those folks that were in the synagogue when Paul's preaching this message initially, now again, that's a a Jewish uh, crowd there and also what we refer to as postulites, those who are coming into the faith, but they're of Gentile descent. Now they're, they're sitting in the back of the synagogue and they're marked off as proselytes, by what, what, what really marks them off? Now, they could come into the Jewish faith to some degree, and there was one barrier that they could really cross over into and then be as close as they possibly could to the in, inner workings of the, of the uh, Jewish faith, but still not yet fully in. Now, they're sitting beyond that barrier. What's the barrier? Just for uh, historical reference here. Anybody? That's circumcision, right? So we're looking at, a, at the, the, their inside, their, their Gentiles inside, but they're not circumcised Gentiles. So they're kind of on the outer barriers here, the outer rim, but they're called God-fears. That's how, they mar- that's how we mark them off as Gentiles who were within the realm of Judaism but not crossing that barrier of circumcision to this point. So out of the crowd, there's an initial response by both factions, if you will, and it's positive. And so they're asking Paul and Barnabas to come back in one week, the next Sabbath, come back and tell us more. Preach to us more about this promised Messiah, the Christ. So they're asking for this. And certainly during the week, so a week passes by, and certainly during the week, Paul and Barnabas have been out teaching and preaching and evangelizing. They spent the whole week there in the city with those folks, talking to them, probably going to some of them's homes, interacting with them, interacting with others. So they're evangelizing, they're communicating the gospel throughout the whole week. And certainly, uh, we, would, we would be right to assume that these folks that were at that uh, synagogue and heard Paul's message, they have gone out and they have told uh, uh, friends and family. So, by the next Sabbath, almost the entire city flocks to this synagogue to hear this message from these new folks, these, these strangers that have come into town. So there's a buzz about the city concerning what's been taught on this prior uh, a Sabbath. And by the time the next Sabbath rolls around, there is, I mean, a large crowd. Verse 40, 44 says that nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. Now, what drew them? There's lots of things that would, uh, you know, in the ancient world, they don't have quite as much entertainment as we did. So if somebody came into town with a new message, they were a hot item. But now, it, it wasn't their appeal. It wasn't... Uh, their, their flashy message. It wasn't their oratory skills. It was the word of the Lord that struck these people. That's what it tells us here. They assembled to hear the word of the Lord. So he just clearly preached Christ. Don't miss that. Don't lose that. He just simply, profoundly, clearly preached Christ. And that's what struck them. That's what provoked them. The gospel provoked them to come back. Amen? The gospel is the power of God into salvation. He just proclaimed the gospel straightforwardly, clearly, precisely, and it provoked the entire city. And so here we are, and this, this now we've got kind of this raucous crowd. Man, everybody's there. There's lots of people showing up. And so when this takes place, a large crowd encourages them to continue. And what they say here, <clears throat> as they assemble, well, 
What are we to make of this? You know, what, what's continued to tell us about this Christ, about this message? And so, we're going to see that there's a divide here. And they're going to be continued, that they're going to continue to encourage both Jew and Gentile to do this, to continue in the grace of God. That's going to be the encouragement. Continue in the grace of God. But sadly, we're going to see that the Jewish faction did not. They turned back to the law and they rejected the gospel of grace. But many of the Gentiles responded to the gospel in saving faith. So to continue in grace of God is to continue really in what would be a saving faith. Danny spoke about that this morning. If one continues in the grace of God, that's to be ultimately continuing in saving faith. So again, we've got two people. You're either going to continue in the grace of God, which is ultimately saving faith, or you're going to reject it. Or, as we, as we talk about in our morning Bible, so there might be a, a semblance of faith, a temporary faith, which is no faith at all. It's just external. But really what it comes down to, you're going to continue in saving faith in the grace of God. Are you going to reject it and continue on in your own sense of some form of morality that is absolutely subjective and contrived from within yourself? And contrary to God's command over your life, there's two options. There's two ways to live. There's always a split. The gospel always divides. And I want you to note here that Paul and Barnabas, their message now, it's implied within the text, but it makes a good point for us. I want you to see here that their lifestyle, they had a lifestyle that was consumed by the message of Christ. So they preached in the synagogue and the folks said, you know, come back. Uh, we want to hear more about this, and they certainly did. And all throughout the week, we, we had a whole week here, and they're just, they're just working the gospel. They're spending their whole time consumed with the gospel. That's what they're doing. They're carrying the gospel. They preach everywhere at all times. They preach throughout the week. And the gospel was visible everywhere they would go. And as we track with them throughout the books of Acts, we're going to see this is always the case. So they're not just, you know, Sunday morning guys that come in and preach the 20-minute sermonette and then they're going out to the, to the golf course. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with playing golf. Please don't hear that. It was just the first illustration that came to my mind. So for all you golfers, go have fun. But as you're playing golf, this is my encouragement, or whatever the case may be. Here's the encouragement. Here's the question. Is the gospel visible on your life? At the links? At the supermarket? Visiting your neighbors is visible in your life. Because it was visible on their life. They were oozing the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were oozing it. What, what of us? What of us? Is it true for us? It was visible. They preached the grace of God that was revealed in Israel's history and that pointed to the full and free justification of God provided in Christ alone. It was not the law. It was the grace of Christ. So the message spread throughout the whole week. And by the next Sabbath, we have this large gathering. And they came near to hear the message of the gospel. And here's the, here's the centerpiece as we move forward. The work of Christ secures forgiveness of all sin, even the sin of the Gentiles. Even Gentile dogs like most or maybe quite frankly all of us. And that's glorious. That is a glorious, gracious God. And that brings us to the emphatic rejection there in verses 45 through 47. So look there with me. Verse 45 begins, But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoke to you. First, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. 
Now here's a great encouragement for you right up front. Respond boldly to the sinful rejection of the gospel. As you are carrying the gospel, as you are a messenger for Christ. Now we talked about that. We're all preachers. Now not all of us are preachers in terms of holding the office. A pastor, elder, or maybe even teacher within uh, the, the, the visible body. But we're all ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're here as a blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ, there is a command on your life that comes from the Great Commission that incorporates all genuine believers. You're to go and make disciples of all nations. And part of that is an evangelistic reality of your life. You are to carry the gospel. You're to preach the gospel wherever you are. The gospel is to be visible on your life everywhere you go. The message of the gospel is to be right there on your lips. So we're all preachers. And as we go forward in that regard as preachers, here's the encouragement. Respond boldly to the the sinful rejection of the gospel. Now, I've labeled this little point here the emphatic rejection. And so I'm not talking about the Jewish uh, contingency there, the Jewish leadership. I'm not talking about their rejection of the gospel. I'm talking about Paul and, Barnabas, Paul, Paul and Barnabas, their rejection of their sinful, of the, of the religious leaders' sinful rejection of the gospel. So they call them to account. That's what I'm trying to communicate to you and in terms of the emphatic rejection. Reject, as you're carrying the gospel, reject an open, sinful rejection of the gospel. You must boldly proclaim the realities of that. If someone rejects the gospel, there is an awaiting condemnation for their soul eternally. They must know that they're commanded to repent and believe on Christ. And if they reject Christ, there is a righteous judge that will condemn them to an eternal literal hell. You must boldly lay that out. There must be a calling and a warning as you go forth and carry the gospel. And that's exactly what we see here from Paul and Barnabas. So you find there that, that word that maybe seems a little strange, and we'll try to, to assess it here in verse 45. It says, when the Jews saw the crowd, and again, this is a large crowd, they were filled with jealousy. And they began to contradict the things that were spoken by Paul, and even they were blaspheming. Now, there's been several thoughts about uh, um, what this really literally means in terms of their being jealous. Now, a large contingency, and I believe, I believe it's true, they were jealous in, the, in, in this sense, that they were jealous of the reality of Paul proclaiming that Gentiles could now come to Christ as the Messiah on equal grounds with Jewish people. And so they were fine with them sitting in the synagogue. They're fine with them sitting in the back of the synagogue. They're fine with them uh, uh, coming into the Jewish faith. But now, if they're to understand that Jesus is the promised Messiah, and understanding that right, they're not, wrong, they're not upset with them coming to Him as the Messiah. But now they come freely on equal footing. They don't have to wander through becoming uh, uh, Jewish in their approach to Christ. They just have free access. And so there's a, there's a notion here that they were jealous in terms that they uh, pushed back against that. There was really a prejudice still looming within them in terms of the freedom that now Gentiles would have to come to Christ. They were on equal footing with the Jews. And so I, I believe that's probably true. And, and, and ultimately they run back to the law. And these... And these Jewish leaders reject their Messiah. But also, I believe there's another shade of it where they're simply jealous of Paul. And there's a self-ambition. I mean, Paul and Barnabas just drew this large crowd. And they're proclaiming this glorious message. And the crowds are flocking to them. And these religious leaders are simply jealous of their perceived success. Now, Paul and Barnabas are certainly not claiming any ability in and of themselves, and they're just proclaiming the gospel based on the strength that the Holy uh, Spirit is giving them. But there's a perception within the Jewish leadership of their, um, their appeal 
And I believe there's, a, there's, there's two elements here going on. And part of it is a jealousy that's directed right at Paul. Just because of the crowd. Because that's why they say they see the large crowd and then they're jealous. And they're jealous to the point of blaspheming. And that term that, that translates to us blaspheming is really uh, directly blaspheming Paul. So they, so they point their blasphemy right at Paul specifically. And so all blasphemy is a, a lying about the reality of what God said about himself. They're blaspheming the character and name of God. But here, it's very straightforward. They're blaspheming Paul for what he's saying. So they go right after Paul because they're jealous of Paul. And in so, in, in so doing, they blaspheme his message saying, this guy is lying about God. That's, that's basically what it comes down to. And so they go after him with this selfish ambition and I'm sure an element of prejudice wound up together. And in so doing, they drive themselves away from the gospel. And 1 Corinthians 3.3 says this. Uh, here again, Paul is speaking to the, Corinth, the church there at Corinth, but this is what he says to them. For you are all still fleshly. Why? For since there is jealousy and strife, there you go. What makes them fleshly? Jealousy and strife. There's jealousy and strife among you. Are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like ordinary people? Well, there it is. The jealousy, the striving, the strife. So the Jews contradict Paul out of jealousy, even to the point of blasphemy. And so it sounds so ridiculous on the surface, is it not? But if we give ourselves a moment, isn't it easy? Isn't it tempting to fall prey to the sin of jealousy? Oh my, how we have to be careful here. I know, I, oh, I know my own struggles here. My, how we have to be careful not to be as, as pastors, not to be even jealous of other ministries, other ministers that are carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ and God is using them in powerful ways and the heart can't be happy and joyous because of jealousy. Oh, why are they having the success and I'm not? How careful we must be with that sin of jealousy. But it ate the Jews up here. It completely ate them up. So how do we deal with this? How do we deal with the sin of jealousy that we see just completely drive these Jewish leaders away from the gospel? Well, here's what I would encourage you to do. Strive to focus on truth and godliness. It's very straightforward. Jealousy is a subtle sin and it can creep into the church. Oh, it can eat us up. Strive to focus on truth and godliness in your own personal walk. And when the temptations come, as, as Danny spoke about this morning, you know, the temptations arise in our hearts. Bill had mentioned that. They arise in our hearts. And, and sometimes at the most vulnerable moments, which we don't believe are the, are the vulnerable moments, we're coming off the mountaintop experiences sometimes. But they're right there looming and our enemies looming. Oh, don't lose sight of the sin of jealousy. That will catch you and steamroll you. So think and pray on truth and godliness in your personal walk. But my, my driving point here is that I want you to see that Paul and Barnabas were bold. Now, there was the jealousy. It did drive them away. But look at the response of Paul and Barnabas to their sinful rejection of the gospel. They rebuked these Jewish leaders and they did so boldly. It says in verse 36, uh, 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. So the word was, go, was to go to the Jewish people first. Now that was God's plan. That is, they, they say here it's necessary. Romans 1.16 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So there's an order here. Now certainly God's gospel goes out to the nations. That's the driving glorious reality of His gospel. But it comes through the means of Jewish history, 
which is type and shadow pointing to Christ. And then ultimately, uh, uh, in a very practical manner, uh, it arose out of the Jewish community and it's communicated to them first. Now, well, again, we're all on equal footing in terms of receiving the gospel. And that's what, part of what they're upset about here in, the, in this context, the religious leaders, Jewish leaders. So there, there's not a, a, a status here, but there, there is an order. Because God, God created history. There's a linear history that He's created and now He has entered into. And it's also very practical. If the gospel is stemming out of this little nation that we see was that we see as graciousness of God in making a covenant with this nation, although we know it wasn't a covenant that's going to save every person in that nation. It's certainly not a covenant that's going to save anyone through the law that was given to that nation. But it is a covenant that marks a nation off and now identifies themselves as in covenant with God, made by God to them, and then an extension of that is a picture, type, and shadow of the whole entire Old Testament pointing to the Messiah who will rise up out of that nation who is the Messiah to the world. And the Jewish nations are to see that as great grace and all the Gentile nations are to see that as great grace of God and making covenant with the nation of Israel. For through that covenant, we have the Messiah as the Savior of the world. And still today, we're to see it the same way. So it goes there first. And the Jewish leaders have this responsibility. This is what Paul and Barnabas call them out on and nail them to. You have a responsibility to believe the gospel. You're accountable before God to believe the gospel. You're commanded like everyone else to believe the gospel. But the purpose for you believing the gospel is that you might carry the light of the gospel to the entire world. Now here's the question. Is that, does that belong to the Jews only? No, that command belongs to us as well. That command belongs to all believers. But here, Paul and Barnabas confront these Jewish leaders and said, the gospel comes to you first. You have, you're commanded to repent. You have a responsibility to believe the gospel and then carry it to the Gentiles. And now the religious leaders here are not seeing themselves as, oh, we're not worthy of such grace. No, we're not. Well, none of us are worthy. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, we don't deem the message worthy of our listening ear. You're wrong. We're going back to the law. That's where we're comfortable. And in rejecting the message, then Paul says to them very clearly, you have pronounced judgment on yourself. That's the point here. Your repudiation of the gospel is your clear judgment upon yourself. You've deemed yourself unworthy. In other words, you've deemed yourself condemned. You've judged yourself. You're found guilty and you're condemned. And he holds their feet to the fire. Both of them, Paul and Barnabas, literally called them out and said, you're commanded to repent and you're guilty. You're guilty. Your sinful rejection of the gospel is guilt upon your soul and you're rightly condemned before a holy God. Here's a Savior. Here's the call. Here's the command to repent. Here's the offer of the full and free gospel. And if you reject, there's righteous condemnation. Now that's a bold, bold repudiation of their rejection. And I want you to be sobered by that. They're saying here, your repudiation of the gospel pronounces your own judgment. And in that sense, they've judged themselves unworthy. Do you see the point? And then they declare to them, look, we're turning to the Gentiles. And in verse 47, uh, Paul repeats here <clears throat> Isaiah 42.6. Now, that's, uh, Isaiah, that's a chapter in Isaiah that's speaking of the Christ. So here this is really speaking about the Christ. And it says, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles. And that's literally Christ. Christ has been placed as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And his point is, look, the gospel comes to you first. You're appointed here to believe on this Christ that's been prophesied in your scripture. And then you are to carry the message of that Christ who is the light of what? To be the light to who? The nations. Christ is appointed to be the light to the nations and you're to carry that truth as your Messiah. That Jesus Christ is the light to the nations. So he's saying, not only should you believe, you should believe and then carry the gospel to the nations. These Gentiles that you still hold prejudice against, that's who you should be carrying the gospel to 
but you're going to reject it for your own souls. So you're guilty. You're guilty. You pronounce yourself condemned. You were called to be the carriers of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations, and you reject them. So we're going to the Gentiles. We'll carry the gospel to the nations, and then they'll carry the gospel to the nations. And by the way, that still includes both groups, Jews and Gentiles. We're still carrying the gospel to the nations. Amen? The gospel still goes to everybody, Jew and Gentile. That's our call. So Christ comes to mankind through the communication of the gospel. You see, don't miss that. That's what he was telling them. You've rejected it, and that's exactly what you're, you're to accept and carry. And then the Gentiles, we're going to the Gentiles, and they'll accept it and they'll carry it. And so if you're here and Christ has called you to himself, you belong to Christ, you have a responsibility to carry the gospel. You're a minister of the gospel. How is the gospel communicated to the nations? It's right here. We just see it by way of example. It's communicated to the nations through Christians ministering the gospel. Amen? That's you. That's you. That's God's command on your life. You're to minister the gospel. We are the means through which the gospel travels. So when he says, I'm turning from you and I'm turning to the Gentiles, they're going to believe and they're not just going to sit on it. Do you understand? Paul's already, that's an assumed thing in Paul's remarks here. Because, look, you were supposed to believe and carry it. Now the Gentiles are going to believe. What are they going to do? Sit on it? No, they're going to carry it. God quickened you from death to life not to sit on it, to carry it. That's how it goes. That's how it travels. Thus we have the responsibility to stand boldly. So we're carriers of the gospel and there's a way that we must carry it. There must be an offer of full and free salvation and a warning of righteous condemnation. And that you must be bold. So in other words, you can't come to someone and say, you know, Jesus loves you and He sure would like for you to be with Him in glory. He would like to consider Him. Lovely Jesus, meek and mild. He's so lonely. He's so lonely in His glory. He needs you to love Him. Won't you come to Him? It's up to you. It's a take or leave. Easy come, easy go uh, uh, message. No. If there is rejection, there is righteous wrath that will be poured out on your soul eternally. It abides on you right now. Least you turn and repent in Jesus Christ, you will be righteously condemned to a literal hell eternally. That's part of your message. And you must be bold in carrying these realities. For grace is no longer graced, lest there be judgment. God is just and gracious. And that's part of the message. And we're to carry it boldly. So now, be sensitive. Let me balance myself out here. Now that we've been hit with that reality, be sensitive, be patient, be long-suffering, be gentle, be gracious, but also be bold in calling for repentance and warning of condemnation. So how do we do this? What do we do in light of this truth? Because that's just not natural for us, is is it? Now, some of us are, are, are a little bolsterous. It might get a little bolsters and we can just fire away, uh, but we can easily get out of balance. And some of us are maybe too, uh, um, um, too soft. And we can just give half the message. So, but there's a balance here that we must have the enabling grace from the indwelling Spirit to walk rightly in it. So what do we do? Well, we pray for boldness. Because a boldness will give you Balance. Not boldness in maybe a a, a fleshly sense or a secular sense that we might think of boldness, but boldness from God, which always gives us a balance in how we are to carry this message. It evens us out where we are not too brash and too arrogant and too harsh and unkind, but where we're not too gentle and too soft and too uh, uh, weak and frail in the message and in all its fullness and all its magnitude and all its God-centeredness. So pray. 
Pray for boldness. And when you ask for boldness, the Spirit of God knows exactly what kind of boldness you need. Pray for boldness. Pray for boldness for yourself and pray for boldness for your pastors. Don't forget that. We're going to be sometimes in circumstances and situations just because we're pastors that you're not going to be in. And boy, do we need boldness. Me personally, I'm scared all the time. I'm always frightened. It doesn't take anything to cower me down. I need boldness. I'm always afraid. So you pray for me that I'll be bold. And do this. As you're ministers of the gospel, as we're ministers of the gospel, you preach for lasting results. You don't give some sugar-coated, half-hearted, easy-come, easy-go gospel, take it or leave it. You preach for lasting results. Now, that's the work of the Spirit, but you're responsible to the message. You preach for lasting results. Not an easy-come, easy-go convert. Amen? Now, let's look at the continuous joy in verses 48 through 52. Look there with me, beginning in 48. When the Gentiles heard this, now, not the rejection uh, uh, of the Jewish leaders, but when they heard the gospel, when they heard the message, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. There you go. This is what they were hearing. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was being spread throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. That's the whole region there, that term district, that's what they mean. That means not just the city, that whole region. But they, that being Paul and Barnabas, they shook off the, they, they shook off the dust of their feet and protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now as we... we Break into this little section here. Know this up front. The indwelling Holy Spirit provides abiding joy. Abiding joy. So the joy stems from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. The joy stems from the the Spirit of God quickening our hearts from death to life. From the Spirit of God coming in at conversion, granting us the gift of faith to repent and believe, And literally, if you will, uh, snatching us out of spiritual darkness and bringing us into the light of His glorious kingdom. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of regeneration. And the work of regeneration is what brings abiding joy to our hearts. It's the life of God and the soul of man. Now, that's not mine, but I can't remember exactly where I've heard that from, but it's good. So I give credit to somebody. The life of God and the soul of man. So the grace extended to the Gentiles, and it caused great joy. The grace of God and salvation extends to the Gentiles, and it causes great joy to rise up within them. And what do they do? I want you to notice that. What do they do when they have this grace extended to them and this great joy springs up within their being? They were glorifying the Word of God. And as many as have been appointed to eternal life uh, uh, believed And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout the whole region. So they heard this and they began rejoicing and began glorifying God. So what happens with them when this happens to them? What's going on? Well, they're honoring God. That's basically what's going on. They're honoring God. What are they doing? They're believing and then they're obeying. They're glorifying God. They're believing the word and they're obeying the word. And what does it say happened there? The word spread throughout the region. Do you see the connection there? So they come to faith. They become followers of Jesus Christ. And what happens? Immediately they begin witnessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They become followers of Christ. They obey. They honor the word. They glorify God. They're they're living in obedience. And then the next thing happens, what are they doing? They're out carrying the gospel. Immediate connection there. Grace is extended to them. They become genuine followers of Christ. They're obeying, they're honoring God, they're honoring the Word, they're believing the Word, and immediately they begin to go and tell others about the Gospel. So the Gospel spreads throughout the whole region. 
They became followers of Christ and they became evangelists. How about that? Why is that so strange? That's a very natural flow right there, a very natural flow from Scripture. If Scripture is our authority, if Scripture sets the tone for our life, well, there's a natural flow. And it doesn't, it's not just found here. But I want you to see it. Don't miss it here. They repent and believe on Christ and go right out and begin to share the gospel. Now, they didn't have to take classes. They didn't have to take a year down the road. You know, maybe that's good. Maybe they did in time. That would be fine and great. You know, fill yourself up. But understand, they're going. They're going with the gospel because their hearts have been transformed. Their lives have been made new. They're no longer the old man. They're now the new man walking in newness of life. And part of the natural overflow of that is to go and carry the gospel. They're now obedient to the great commission that that rests upon all genuine followers of Jesus Christ. And immediately they go forth and they spread the word. Why? Well, they're commanded to. The Spirit of God is, is residing within them fully now. Just like all believers, now this side of the new covenant fully residing within them. And that's our command. And that's the quickening of the Spirit. And they're living in obedience. So they go. They go forth and they carry the gospel. But also there's another resounding truth there. They're just so overwhelmed by His grace extended to them that they can't help but share it with somebody. Amen. It's just too glorious to sit on. And the same is true for us. Is it not just too glorious to sit on? But it says here, we get a little interesting term here. In verse 48, it says, As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Well, what do we do with that? Well, this is what's been referred to as the doctrine of election. Um, In this context, it's been... Uh, there's, there's two views, basically, that we're looking at the doctrine of election, which means that God appoints them before the foundation of the world to eternal life, and then who He appoints will in space and time repent and believe upon hearing the gospel at some point in space and time. But there's uh, been a contingency here that would say, well, no, this is just the Gentiles being equipped or prepared to receive the gospel, sort of prepped to see the gospel at this moment. So it's not really speaking to eternal election. I would say the grammar probably would dispute that and, I, and, and rule that out. The grammar comes to us in what we have, uh, what we call a perfect tense. And I don't want to get too technical here, but the perfect tense is just something that happens in the past and has an effect in the, in the present or that would extend into the future. Now, it being in the perfect tense is purposeful, meaning that it happened in eternity past and then would have an effect in the present at their current time in the linear space and time at the moment they're hearing the gospel. So the tense of this term appointed would lead us to understand it's talking about election. This happened in the past. This appointment happened in the past. It's not a grooming them at the moment uh, to prepare for responding to the gospel. It's something that happened in the past that has an effect in the present and extends on. So what we're looking at here is the doctrine of election. And they were appointed to election in the past and that appointment was the decree of God and in space and time at that moment they're believing the gospel as a result of God appointing them in eternity past. Appointing these people to eternal life which would then transpire at that moment in time. So faith is a gift of God. All appointed actually come to faith in Jesus Christ. So they came to faith in Jesus Christ at that moment because they were appointed by God in eternity past. And this is the moment of their conversion. And so the appointment is, if you will, then effectual. That is to say, it perfectly accomplishes its goal. Now, that happens in space and time. That's linear. And there's moments of time for various people in various stages and various aspects of life and various generations. But their appointment that occurred in eternity past is effectual. It will come about perfectly in space and time. That's what we see uh, being spoken of here. So all appointed 
were granted the gift of saving faith. And here we see these Gentiles being granted that gift of saving faith in space and time that God created. They're granted that gift of faith by God because He had appointed them unto salvation and eternity past. That's the doctrine of eternal election. But let me go back out of that. And that is glorious. So let's just tidy that language up right there. I hope that serves you well. But let me drive at this a little bit. The natural overflow of that reality of their election, their, their appointment, and, and now coming to fruition in this moment of time is they go and then start evangelizing. They carry the gospel. So faith and God's electing power and evangelism go hand in hand. Can I get that to you? They go hand in hand. Now this is glorious. Stay with me here. God appoints the ends as well as the means. Now we hear that a lot. And it sounds good, but I don't know how else to put it. He, he appoints the ends. In other words, He's, ha- he's appointed folks to election. There is, a, there is a, a, an innumerable amount of people on the planet throughout all generations until Christ returns that God has elected before time. They are coming to faith. There are people out in this world that are coming to faith. Christ hasn't returned yet. So there's people in this world that are coming to faith. Now that's a reality. That's an end. And then there's a means through which they're coming to faith. And here we see that practiced out. We see that, or fleshed out, we see that in practice. The evangelistic endeavors of His people who have already come to faith. So that's the means. So God appoints the end and He appoints the means. There's people that's coming to faith and these people that have already come to faith here and just the same is true, the same is true for us. When we come to faith, then we become that means. We're the instrument through which God uses to bring people to saving faith. It comes to the evangelistic endeavors of His people. Now, can God work in various ways? Yes, but the core, the driving means is the carrying of the gospel by His people. The command, the Great Commission, is the means, the carrying of the gospel by His people. And we're carrying it with the knowledge in hand given to us by the decree of our eternal God. Now, what is that? There's people out there that will come to the gospel. They will respond in saving faith. Is that good when you're going out to carry the gospel? Is that good? Is that encouraging? Now, just think with me. Walk with me here. That means it doesn't depend on... It doesn't, does it? Is that a weight off the shoulder? I was was sharing the gospel with a young lady this week. And I was, I was trying to work my way into the gospel. And just as I felt like I was closing in on, on communicating the gospel to her, she, she, came up, she came to me with a question. She said, well, do y'all allow women leaders in your church? And so I said, I felt obliged to try to respond. I said, well, one, we don't have the authority to allow women leaders or not allow women leaders in our church. We do not have women leaders in our church because we're responding to the authority of Scripture over us as God's people that commands us uh, to, uh, to have male leadership based on creative order, according to the authority of Scripture. And, she, and then she said to me, well, you're a white supremacist. And so it derailed from there a little, and I never got to the gospel. I never got there. And if I felt like it depended on me and my ferry to communicate it, I would be crushed this morning. My heart anguishes for that young lady. But I would be crushed in my inability to effectively carry it. Because in that sense, I failed. But it doesn't depend on me. And it doesn't depend on you. This is God's work. But you're a means. You're His vessel. You're His means of carrying it. And you have a responsibility there. And it starts with just doing it. Just actually carrying it. And trust the work to God. That's the, that's the joy. Trust the work to God. It's a joy. So here's the natural overflow. is this evangelism. It's the means. God has appointed some to eternal life and appointed the use of your witness. Both are true. Isn't that glorious? Some are coming to eternal life and your witness is going to be the means. 
Both are appointed by God. Thus witnessing becomes a joy. My heart anguishes over the response by that lady. But I'm joyous. I'm joyous of the gospel. I didn't get it to her, but I'm joyous of the gospel. I pray that somewhere, sometime, next soon, or maybe even her if I ever see her again, that I'll get it to her. I'll get it to somebody else. But the gospel is glorious. Evangelism is joyful. And our failures are not the last say. It's just the endeavor. We don't have the power and capacity to save anybody anyway. That's the, that's the work of God. But we're commanded to go forth, and it's a joy to carry it. We know that our witness is a means through which God brings about salvation. So Scripture witnesses to the sovereignty of God and salvation, and Scripture witnesses to proclaiming of the gospel to His people. So proclaim it and pray that God will reveal uh, that truth to whom you share the gospel. Just, that's the thing. Just, just pray. Pray that that will be the case. Proclaim it and pray that God will reveal this reality, that God is sovereign in salvation. Don't be afraid of that. That's, that's Scripture. Proclaim that reality and trust the work to God. Trust the rest to God. Well, lastly, let's look there at verses 50 through 52. And there it says that the Jews incited the devout women of prominence there and the leading men in the city and they instigated persecution against Paul and Barnabas and they drove them all the way out of the district. Well, this is probably devout women. It's probably those, those uh, women in, the, in uh, the city there that were, that were gravitating towards Judaism. And often there's um, a moral fiber that is mer- God's mercifully placed within women that, that maybe resonates a little more readily than in men. And so mothers, uh, keepers of the home and, and uh, nurturers of their children, they like the idea of the moral law. They like that stability. And so, so the women were crying, gravitating towards um, Judaism here. And so the, the, the Jewish leaders preyed upon this, stirred them up, and they went back and basically incited their husbands. And these were prominent men in the city. So they incited their husbands, and the husbands went after Paul and Barnabas, and it says they drove them all the way out of the region. Now, sometime, here's, a good, here's just one more good nugget for you. At some point, it's okay to leave. You've got to know that too. If we're going to carry the gospel, look, that's a, that's a risky proposition. At some point, it's okay to leave. At some point, it's necessary. And then you've got, you've got to just walk within the Spirit of God and, and, and trust His, His direction in your life for these moments. But sometimes it's necessary to go. That's okay. But they were protesting against their rejection of the gospel, and they were pronouncing doom on their rejection of the gospel. And as a result of this, persecution came upon them. So, for you... Be ready for trouble. Be ready for opposition. Be ready for persecution. And respond without compromise. That's your responsibility. Now, again, are there moments you might need to go? Yes. But you respond without compromise. Be ready for these things. Don't let them take you off guard. Be ready. Proverbs 27.4 Wrath is fierce the anger is, and anger is a flood. But who can stand before jealousy? There it is. Jealousy's the killer. Who can stand before jealousy? Sometimes you just may have to pack it up and wait for another day. But be ready. Be ready to be mistreated. You're going to have opposition. And finally, verse 52, I want you to see as he returns here and just leaves us with this beautiful note. And the disciples there, that's there in the region, in Presidian Antioch, the disciples there were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul and Barnabas left them, right? They're gone. Nobody there to teach them anymore. They're just like, they're just like little orphans, right? What are they going to do? How are they going to make it? Do you know this church was one of the strongest churches? There, there are many churches that, that God planted gloriously in the first century in this region. And this, this church was one of the strongest churches in the entire region. It lasted the longest. It had a glorious history there. And it had a start with a little, small little group without any leaders. But the Holy Spirit was residing within them. And they were continually filled with joy. 
Joy because they were filled. They were filled with joy because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, were they free from conflict? No, not at all. This church faced a lot of conflict. But they were full of certain victory, and that must be true of us. You're not going to be free of conflict. Stop hiding from it. And hold on to the reality that you're full of victory. Well, what about this being filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, there's the beauty. They were full of the Holy Spirit. That's what gave them joy. Now, the Spirit of God indwells all believers, but we're not always full of the Holy Spirit, right? Those are two different things. There's an indwelling, but then there's a filling. And the feeling comes really from this. That's just, that's our responding to God. We have a part there. That's part of the sanctification process. That's part of our worship. The more we desire God to fill us up, the more we ask to be filled up, the more we pursue Him in Scripture, the more we possess of the feeling of the Spirit. So this is a real act of worship. So we're to be faithful stewards of being filled with the Spirit. That's a pursuit that we're to have as God's people. And that is what molds our character. We talked about the maturing process this morning and, and some elements we looked at, it, you know, what's, what's indicators of maybe we're, where we're not coming along as much as we want, things that we could see in our, our sanctification process where we're weak. Well, this is part of it. This is, where, well, this is where we mature in the faith. This is where we're made strong. We're to be stewards of this. The filling of the Holy Spirit is what molds our character. That's where the charismatic community is really off base here because the filling of the Holy Spirit to them is an outward, outward uh, uh, emotional response of the moment when it's quite the opposite. The filling of the Holy Spirit does this. It slowly, surely, in a, in a steady way, builds our character. It molds and shapes us more and more into the character of Christ. So it's this ongoing, consistent reality of our growing in the faith, not moments of sporadic external emotional uh, uh, um, uh, markings. It's an internal, slow, steady molding and carving and chiseling of our character. We pursue it in prayer and in the study of God's Word. What about the seven there? Look back in the first part of Acts. What about the seven? They're just giving the, the basic things of making sure the widows were fed and cared for. That seemed like a simple thing, right? Who did they give it to? Well, the leader there, Stephen, was full of the Holy Spirit. Men of character. Why? Why? Because men of character are gentle and gracious and strong. They're balanced. They're balanced. They're marked off with spiritual maturity. They're balanced. They're full of goodness and joy whatever the circumstance, and that's the key. My, how circumstances just push us like the wind. Just toss us about like the wind in our our culture. We're so frail. We've adopted the ways of our culture. We're so spiritually frail. The circumstances dictate to us. It just pushes us about. We're fearful. But strong men and women of the faith, men and women filled with the Holy Spirit, are not fearful. They're good and they're joyous and that abides in them through all circumstances of life. So what do we do here in closing? Well, we're to be filled with joy because of the gospel. The gospel is why we're to be filled with joy. So we're to pursue the Holy Spirit in prayer to fill us, fill us up. So here's the questions I'll leave you with. Does the gospel bring joy to you? Are you so entangled with the things of this world? Are you so preoccupied with doing stuff at your house? Do you get lost in the flood of just trying to keep up with the Jones like I do sometimes? Do you get lost in the flood of how your house might appear to someone else? Do you get entangled in trying to have all the little fleeting things of this world that are going to amount to nothing? They're going to amount to nothing. Are you so entrapped by the tawdry things of this world that you fail to have joy over the gospel, that you fail to pursue being filled by the Spirit, and that your life will be a walking gospel message till Christ comes you, calls you home? So does the gospel shape your lifestyle? If so, you'll pursue joy. And the more you pursue it, the more you pursue being filled with the Spirit, the more you'll be filled. It abounds with an endless array. It's accessible 
to all true believers to be spirit-filled in all of life and all circumstances. May that be true of us. God help us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for uh, these few verses here. We pray that you would take the truth of these verses and you would uh, knit them sweetly in our heart and, and that you would um, nurture them and, and uh, um, work them into the very fabric of our being and uh, that we would be men and women who pursue you more fully and our endeavors to worship you, to know you, that we might be filled, filled with the Spirit and, and um, consumed with your gospel uh, to the glory of, of your grace, to the, to the glory of your name, and that we would go forth and we would be uh, men and women of character, um, men and women of boldness, and, and all the, the, the right sense of, of the term, uh, how you would define it for your people, and men and women of conviction, and men and women of purpose, that the gospel would be the heartbeat of our existence and our being, and that we might go as strong evangelists out to, to make disciples for your glory and for the good of mankind. I ask that you would help us, strengthen us, and that our lives uh, would be knit together in unity of Christ uh, to worship you and to make much of your name. We pray it in the name of Christ. Amen.